And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, world. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie. I am unfortunately flying solo this week. Our darling Harmony is moving out of that basement apartment she's been in for a long time, so she'll be back with us next week. But fear not, I am joined with a very wonderful guest, Eleanor Brown, the author of Any Other Family. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us. And to get us started, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself and your new book, Any Other Family? Sure. So I don't, I don't know what to tell you about myself. I live in Colorado. I was actually saying, I hope this we're not doing video because we just got back from hiking. Very Colorado thing to do. And uh, a few years ago, uh, my husband and I adopted our son. And it's been a really interesting experience. And people have had a lot of questions. And we've had a lot of questions. So I took all of those questions and I put them into any other family, which is the story of three sets of parents who become a sort of family when they adopt biological siblings and decide that they're going to continue to raise them as siblings, even though they're being raised in different houses. And it takes place over the course of a two-week family vacation in the mountains here in Colorado. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the setup. Fantastic. And let me tell you, listeners, if you happen to be here and you haven't read the book yet, it is absolutely fantastic. So I highly, highly, highly recommend that you run to pick it up. Any Other Family is, as you mentioned, a book that's centered around the experience of being a parent through open adoption. You talk about this in your author's notes, so I'm sorry to start with a redundant question, but for anybody who maybe isn't in the habit of reading author's notes, can you tell me a bit about what you hope readers come away with understanding about adoption and the adoption process after finishing this book? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I I think like a lot of people had thought adoption would be an interesting way to grow our family, but we hadn't really explored it. And adoption has changed a lot and it looks very different now. So I think that when most people think about adoption or hear about adoption, they think about closed adoption, which is when there's not contact between the adoptee and their birth family or there's very limited contact. But what we've discovered over time is that if it's possible, and it's not always possible or healthy, but if it is possible, that it can be really beneficial for the adoptee to have a relationship with their birth family. And so that's what we call open adoption. So we have an open we have an open relationship with our son's birth parents and their extended families. And, you know, he has grown up and will grow up knowing exactly who they are. And so... You know, one of the things that I was hoping to do with this story was just to get people thinking about and asking questions about adoption and recognizing that it doesn't necessarily look the way that they think that it looks and that people get to form families however they want and however works for them. We're very lucky. We've had a great experience with open adoption. It can be tricky sometimes, but family is tricky sometimes. And that's another thing I really think that the people come away with from the book is that 
adoptive families are families and they have you know many of the same questions and concerns and and wonderful moments as biological families or chosen families of any kind do yeah absolutely i feel like the older i get the one thing i really understand is that family is very worthwhile but it is very complicated no matter what setup you're in yeah yeah And kind of going off of that, one of the main themes that all three of our main characters return to over and over again is that question of what makes a family and what makes a family specifically when we, the adults in this situation, feel like we simultaneously know everything and nothing about each other. So I wanted to ask, how did you think about crafting Tabitha, Elizabeth, and Ginger's very different responses to that question in a way that felt very authentically individual to them, but also made it clear to the reader that ultimately they were really wrestling with the same core problem throughout the book. Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, this is a book that's centered around adoption, but I think really the core question that it's centered around is what makes a family, right? Is it blood? Is it, you know, marriage or some kind of commitment? Is it simply naming you are my family and I'm naming you my family and therefore we are family? But one of the things that I think is very true, and I think that kind of all my books are obsessed with this, is is how do we become the people that we are? And in what what baggage are we carrying from our pasts? And so that's really what what the three mothers in this story are wrestling with. The way that the baggage from their past and the people, the way they grew up and the people who they were are affecting the people that they are now, the parents that they are now, and also the, you know, whatever we want to call their relationship, siblings, co-parents to each other. And so, you know, that's the same thing. And it manifests in different ways, right? So Tabitha had this very she was a, a lonely only, not all only children are lonely, but she was, she really would have appreciated a, a bigger, closer knit family. And so she is determined to have that now. And Ginger was an introvert growing up in this super extroverted family and is now trying to figure out how to keep boundaries around herself and recognizing whether what her child needs and what she needs are the same thing, which is always an interesting thing to wrap, to grab with. And then Elizabeth um, has a whole set of other problems, um, a lot of which deal with grief and anger, which female anger was something I was very interested in when I was writing her story. So yeah, like they're each working through that and they each think they have a different problem, but they all have the same problem, which is the problem we all have, which is that we're carrying baggage around from our pasts into our present. And we need to figure out as human beings, how to mitigate the damage that that previous fallout has has caused to us and keep it from causing damage to other people that we're that we're now existing with. Yeah, absolutely. I love it when the questions just flow perfectly, because something that I really enjoy about this novel is that it really emphasizes that you don't have to have a quote unquote, bad childhood to have a complicated relationship with your immediate family or trauma surrounding how you were raised. And I was curious about Tabitha's story specifically about what was your philosophy about unpacking her backstory and creating a character who had a hard time grappling with the fact that her upbringing didn't really work for her, even though she was also loved and safe and cared for. Oh my gosh, these are such good questions. I'm having to write write them down because I want to make sure that I answer what you're talking about. So yeah, so first of all, 
Yeah, I mean, your family, you know, and your and your upbringing, your past is going to give you baggage of some time, even if it doesn't qualify, you know, as what we would call in social work, like an adverse childhood experience, right? You know, it still forms who you are, and can be something that you continue to wrestle with. And I think you really nailed it. Because one of the things that that I thought a lot about, and we can talk more about this later. So for instance, if you if you become pregnant biologically, and you tell people, and what they say, what do they say to you? Uh, Congratulations, when are you due? And when you are looking to adopt, and you tell people that what they the questions you get are very different. Why do you want to adopt? Uh, Why do you want to have kids? Uh, What makes you what's going to make you a good parent? Can I see your last three years of tax returns so that I can make sure you're financially stable enough for a child? Can you tell me in detail about your sex life with your partner so I can make sure that this is a healthy relationship that that you're continuing that you're considering bringing this child in into? And so these questions are really are really different. And another one of the the things that I want readers to grapple with when they read this is what makes a good parent? How do you decide that? How do you look at someone and be like, yeah, you make a good parent. And then also, and I promise I'm getting back to your question here. Also, what makes you a good parent for this particular child? And I think that that you just asked that so nicely is Tabitha's family of origin was the wrong family for her. Right. And so this is something that I think about sometimes. And as a former teacher, I would see kids all the time who were being raised in the wrong family. I was like, you do not belong there. So this question of this question of wrestling with it. But one of the ways that I and you talked about this in your last question, too. One of the ways that I created these characters was I am big into the Enneagram. Are you familiar with the Enneagram at all? Okay. So for those of you who aren't, it's a personality theory. I often liken it to Myers-Briggs because people know Myers-Briggs a little bit better, I think. But it's really helpful if you're a writer. It's a really helpful way to think about character. And so what I was thinking about with Tabitha, you know, so she feels like her family of origin was the wrong family for her, but she is a type one, which is the perfectionist or the reformer. So she is always going to see what's wrong, right? She will never be able to see the gifts of the family she grew up in. So she's just constantly looking and being like, this doesn't work. This isn't right. This could have been better. And she's bringing that into into her family now. So it's not even, you know, that that her family caused her her trauma or created her particular distress. It's that the personality that she has in the particular way that she views the world carries her through in this way where she is just always looking to make things better. Always, always, always things can be better. And those people are wonderful, right? I mean, that gives us Gandhi and that gives us Martin Luther King and and that's wonderful, but also it can be really hard on you and everyone around you if you're constantly looking to make to make everything better. That's really interesting that you that you thought about it through an Enneagram lens. I am a four wing three, so yeah, I really like it. It's it's wow, that really just changed my perspective on Tabitha. Um, <laughs> but also I think really flows into a different question that I had that I have about Tabitha, which is that kind of going off of all of that, a really central point of conflict in this novel is class disparity. And Tabitha is somebody who always wants to help and usually has the very best of intentions, but is very blasé about monetary concerns and also giving monetary help, which understandably doesn't sit very well with Elizabeth and Ginger all the time. So I was wondering, 
even just going off of all of that, why was it important to you to kind of include that disparity in wealth as a central theme in the novel? And what do you hope readers take from Tabitha's journey to kind of a more enlightened understanding of her own wealth in relation to the rest of her family? Yeah, so there's a lot of things uh, that are really central to the to questions about adoption that I couldn't bring into this book, either because I'm just not the right person to tell the story. So for instance, the birth mother doesn't have a voice in this book, which was a little bit practical. You have three sets of parents and you have four biological kids. So already there's nine people in the room at all times. And there's just a stage management issue with that. So that was part of it. But also just because I didn't feel like it was my, it was, it was not, you know, my lane, right? I am an adoptive mom. And so I feel very comfortable speaking in that voice. And I still did a ton of research and I still talked to a lot of people, but there's just things I couldn't include. Race is a huge issue in adoption, but I could not bring it into the story. It was just too big. And again, not my story to tell. But another huge issue in adoption is finances, right? So one of the things we know, for instance, is we know that people who are living in various levels of difficult financial financial circumstances are more likely to have their children placed in foster care and to have parental rights terminated. And, you know, there's all kinds of really interesting social reporting about things like that. People who have jobs where they have to leave their kids at home because they have no childcare option. And if they don't go to work, they're going to get fired and then their kids get taken from them. Right. So, so anyway, to make a long story longer, money is, is central to issues of adoption. And I also think that this was an opportunity If you are from a certain social class, it is often true that the rest of your family is going to be in that certain class, right? It's not, it's less likely that you're going to have an incredible disparity. But this family, which is formed in an unusual way, they do have this opportunity, right? Because they are in very, very different financial situations. So it was a little bit of my way of brushing up against the issue of of money and adoption. I also very much wanted to talk about how much adoption costs how much fertility treatments cost, because these are issues that are central. And especially if we're going to do things like force people to give birth, then we need to talk about how we are supporting those people as parents and how we are supporting adoption, how we are supporting fertility treatments, all of those things. So it's really, really an issue. And I wanted to bring all of those, all of those forward in there. So yes, Tabitha is It's like she thinks that she's a, oh God, what's the right way to put this? She thinks that she is a loving embrace when she tries to help people, but she is a sledgehammer and she doesn't know it. And she doesn't know that her sledgehammer is often made of money. And this is something that people who've grown up with money don't often think about is is what it feels like not to have any and what it feels like to have people sort of give you quote charity right you know how how patronizing that can feel how uncomfortable it can feel how it feels to be indebted to other people and Tabitha just never thinks about that right because she's thinking she's giving everybody else a hug and and when she doesn't realize that she's really beating them over the head with her money so to me it's less about what she comes to realize about 
about money in particular and more that she comes to realize that this sort of form of caring that she puts forth is a form of control and that when she thinks that she is only being kind that other people are not always interpreting it that way that people have different ways of of thinking because she really is it's funny it's nice to hear you ask questions about Tabitha because I don't get as many questions about Tabitha when I talk to people and I actually somebody somebody was reading my book the other day and texted my husband was like, Tabitha is just the worst. And I was like, she's not the worst. She's actually lovely in so many ways. It's just that she doesn't see how the caring, how, how the, what she sees as caring looks like for other people. I don't know if you that answered your question. I went 70 different directions because I'm so glad someone asked me about this question, but yeah, absolutely. Money is something that, that I think is really interesting to wrestle with and we don't write about it a lot. And so it's really good to be able to put it into a story in, in a way that it works. Yeah. And I love how it happens so authentically, both from Tabitha's kind of not thinking about it. There's this moment sort of a hundred pages in where Tabitha's talking to Perry about why Elizabeth and John don't want to adopt again. And she's thinking about it and she's like, oh, it's a money problem. Well, money is a small and solvable problem. Right. And I had to put the book down for a second because I was like, I can see your perspective here, but girl, this is not the take. And then I picked it back up and moved forward. <laughs> But I, I don't know, I didn't think Tabitha was the worst. In some ways, I thought Tabitha was the most relatable because it was somebody with great intentions who wasn't seeing her actual impact on the people around her and the people that she loved so much. And I feel like that's a very human experience. Yeah. But something else that you said that was really interesting, too, is about the sledgehammer. And I think that one of the people who struggles the most with Tabitha's sledgehammer is Elizabeth. Yeah. And... One of the things that was really compelling to explore throughout the novel was the idea of how others perceive us versus the way that we perceive ourselves, which is something you touched on a little bit with Tabitha, but for me was especially heartbreaking and interesting to read in Elizabeth's story. She's so hard on herself as a new mom and is so struggling with the fact that motherhood is not everything she dreamed it would be. But then on the flip side, Tabitha and Ginger look at her and see very genuinely somebody who's amazing with all the kids, who has a connection with all of the siblings, who whose kid adores her. And I was wondering why it was important to you to kind of portray that gulf between how we can feel about ourselves and our situations and how other people, especially our family, perceive us. Yeah, that is okay. That's another great question. So let me answer this on two tracks. So the first one is I'm very interested in birth order. Anybody who's read my first novel, The Weird Sisters, that's really centered around birth order. And so again, you know, how, what are the forces that shape us and how does that play out? So Elizabeth is a youngest child. She's always the youngest child. And then she gets put into this situation where Tabitha and Ginger are significantly older than she is and have been parents for longer. And she again feels like the youngest child, right? She feels like she can't do anything right because that's the story that she was told when she was younger. And she feels like she's telling it herself, right? She's telling it to herself again and again and again. And, you know, being an infant parent is hard. One of the things that I that I say to people a lot is not everybody likes every stage of parenting and not everybody is good at every stage of parenting. So I, for instance, loved being an infant mom. I was actually just talking to my friend that I went hiking with today and she was like, 
I was like, oh God, you know, your younger one is a toddler now. Toddler was so hard for me. And she was like, oh, I like toddler so much better than infant. And I was like, what are you talking about? Right. So it's just that perspective. And so for Elizabeth, she's a middle school teacher. When the kids are 13, she is going to be set. Right. But infancy is just really hard for her. And there's all kinds of other issues that are going on there. So. Okay, so it's the the pattern that she's fallen into of I can't do anything right. I'm not good enough. It's that 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 birth order that's coming out even in this family where there is not birth order happening. There is still birth order happening. There's the question of when she um you know, of just not liking this phase of parenting. And that's okay. You are allowed not to like it. There's a sort of toxic positivity that comes along with adoption, where it's like, you know, this child is a miracle and came to you for a reason and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, yeah. And also I haven't slept, gotten a full night's sleep in three months and I'm effing tired and grumpy. And I'm allowed to feel both of those things, right? And I feel very much that way as, as an adoptive mom. I think when when we first brought him home, I was like, I'm never going to complain about this because he's such a miracle. He's such a gift. And it's like, yes, he is a miracle and a gift. And I'm incredibly grateful for him. And I love him more than anything in the world. And I am also allowed to be annoyed when he throws a tantrum or, you know, doesn't sleep for two weeks or whatever, whatever it is. I'm allowed to do those things. And so is Elizabeth. So it is But when you get locked into a story in your head, the way Elizabeth is locked into this story, it is impossible to see things clearly the way that Tabitha and Ginger can can see it. She just keeps telling herself this story of I'm not good enough. You know, I'm not made to do this. I'm not made to be a mom. I'm not made to be a good mom. And she keeps telling herself that story again and again, and it gives her no perspective. And it's amplified by the fact that Violet, the baby, is colicky and she hasn't gotten a good night's sleep since she was born, basically. And there's a so there's a lot of things that are amplifying that to her. But I think that we tell ourselves stories about ourselves and we believe them. You know, again, there's like that baggage that we carry from the past. We believe so firmly these stories that we've been telling ourselves since childhood. And sometimes you just have to have someone else tell you that it's not true. Someone who can see you objectively or lovingly or whatever you need, whatever whatever adverb you need, and say, you know, this thing is not true. And that's absolutely the case with Elizabeth. It's like we need people to reflect to us reality because we can't see it ourselves often. That makes a lot of sense to me, too, especially because another struggle that Elizabeth is really going through through the novel is isolation. Mm -hmm. She and John go through IUI and IVF mostly alone. She's trying to power through motherhood like she's a superhero and has trouble accepting help because it always feels like criticism. Mm -hmm. But I think that to me, one part of her journey that was super powerful was that it feels like it's a lot about solidarity and seeing the love and assistance that's pouring her way from the rest of her family for what it actually is. Mm -hmm. So I was curious, when you were thinking about Elizabeth's character, did you know from the beginning that that aspect of isolation was going to be something she struggled with? And how did you think about crafting that kind of character growth where she can finally see the family as people who can be relied upon and who can stand with her when things are tough rather than as adversaries who are against her? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think actually all three of the mothers in this book really wrestle with isolation. And this is something that we have 
we have done to ourselves as a culture. Uh, and I'll, I'll look at this specifically through the lens of parenthood, but it's also true in all in other kinds of ways. The, the comparison that happens because of social media, the, the, the sort of capitalist myth of bootstrapping has somehow permeated parenthood too. It was like, you have to do this yourself and um, you have to figure it out yourself. This idea that this weird way we've set it up so we live in these tiny nuclear families, often very diff distant from, excuse me, from biological family or other kinds of support systems. So all three of the mothers in this book absolutely are wrestling with this question of isolation and this idea that they have to do it themselves, right? I have to do it on my own. Elizabeth, I think especially because she has lots of feelings about shame because of her fertility treatments, which is very common. And then of course, again, the childhood messages that, that she got. Elizabeth too. So she's an Enneagram eight and she is used to being in charge. She doesn't mind. She doesn't mind taking care of other people, but she doesn't want other people taking care of her because it makes her feel vulnerable and weak. And I think this is something that's funny. Actually, it was another podcaster who really pointed out how deep this theme of isolation runs and kind of illuminated some things about me as a, as a parent and as a person. I'm always convinced I have to do it myself. And we don't have any family close by. My son's birth parents live close by, but we try to keep that relationship from turning caregivery, right? We don't want to turn them into babysitters because that's not the relationship that they have with them. So yeah, parenthood can be super isolating and all of these cultural things can contribute to that. I also wrote this book in 2020. This was my pandemic book. And I was like sitting in this room all by myself all day long, I think probably also influenced some of that. But yeah, so the, 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 what, what Elizabeth comes to understand is that accepting help is not weakness and that this family, she feels like her family of origin was not a safe place for her emotionally, but this family is a safe place. And, you know, one of the things is that happens about adoption is like you really center the kid especially in open adoption. The question is, what is right for this kid? And that's what this particular family and any other family have, has done. You know, we want to raise these children as siblings because they are siblings. What's the best thing for the children? And so that's really what helps Elizabeth. And that is why the family is a safe place because it's not about the parents and it's not about them. It's about what is best for these kids. And I think that, that that's finally what Elizabeth Elizabeth realizes, and I think she realizes taking care of myself is the best thing that I can do for my child, which is not a narrative we hear about motherhood at all, right? We hear about, you know, sacrificing and I would do anything for my kid and, you know, whatever. Like sometimes, sometimes you got to take care of yourself first. It's the best thing that, that you can do. Yeah, absolutely. The scene towards the end of the novel where she reflects on the fact that she feels like an entirely different person after having just one good night's sleep and it was like yeah. her whole outlook changed was actually very emotional to read of being the most basic forms of self-care are the most important when times are hard and it's okay yeah. to prioritize yourself in those moments because it will make you feel better and also be able to show up better for the people that you love. Totally. Do you know, do you know the ministry of naps? Are you familiar with her at all? I do not. Mm -mm. So, 
you have to, you have to Google the ministry of naps. It is a woman and this is kind of her gospel. And she's speaking specifically to people of color who are doing social justice work. And I think her message is especially re- resonant to anybody who has spent the past, God, how long has it been since the you know 2016 election, you know, trying to do that social justice work and trying to, you know, to fight, but it's, Naps are not bad. You know, capitalism tells you that naps are bad and naps are lazy and naps are are weakness. And she's like, you got to rest. If you are fighting, you have got to rest. So so absolutely. Yeah. I'm definitely going to look that up. That absolutely resonates with me. Circling back a little bit, it's funny that you said that this was your pandemic novel and it resonates so deeply with isolation. We're actually hearing that from a lot of authors this season so far, which makes a lot of sense. But I also noticed the isolation in Ginger's story too, but it also shows up in a much different way. Because as you mentioned earlier, Ginger grows up feeling like the odd one out in her immediate family. And then as part of the family, she often feels the same way. She's just somebody who wants some peace and quiet. And the family doesn't isn't really geared to operate like that. Yeah. So I, I wanted to know why it was important to you to have that character who felt like their personality just didn't necessarily mesh with the family. And how you kind of thought about creating that balance for Ginger of boundaries where she can honor who she is and her personal preferences, but then also find the ways that she does fit genuinely and authentically into the rest of the family. So absolutely, there is that that part of isolation. I think with her also, that word boundaries is so important, right? Because again, I feel like one of the things that we think is that when you become a parent, you simply stop existing as a human being. And that's not true. You are still exactly the person you were. And now you're a parent. And that is both a good thing and a bad thing to remember. So I think Ginger's issue is that she has refused to she has refused to relax her boundaries in a way that would allow her daughter to become the person that she is right because what you what you find out in the story is that ginger's like oh i gotta do this and i gotta do this for phoebe i gotta do this for phoebe I was like, that's not actually what Phoebe wants or Phoebe needs right now, friends. Like you, that's you. And again, we're carrying our own stuff around and we're thrusting it on our kids and we're thrusting it on other people. So yeah, in her case and Elizabeth's case, they both need to, I don't want to say relax their boundaries because I'm a big fan of boundaries, but to recognize that that boundaries you have set in the past may not serve you in the same way right now. And that Ginger cannot continue to maintain the sort of isolated independent lifestyle that she had, had had preferred when she wasn't a parent, right? When she wasn't part of this family. And you do that, this is where you have that negotiation between being a person and being a parent, right? And I still have to have boundaries and I still have to take care of myself. And I have to think about the community around me. And I have to think about uh, what my child needs instead of what I need and, and what works for me. Even though that is incredibly painful, sometimes it's very, very hard, you know, to watch your kid fail, or it's very, very hard to watch your kids struggle, but you've got to, you've got to let them do it. So again, you ask such good questions that I don't know if I'm ever, I've ever answering them, but Ginger, I think is a question of 
I have been so safe and so isolated for so long and that is not necessarily working. So how can I continue to allow myself my introvert time and my peace and quiet time while recognizing that I'm now a parent to a tween and involved in a family that has a lot of young kids in it and is going to be loud and noisy and complicated sometimes? You're, you're totally answering my questions. Thank you for giving such detailed answers. Going off of all of that, I think that one of the most both beautiful and heart-wrenching parts of the book is reading Ginger's relationship with her daughter, Phoebe, who's one of the children that we really see the most of throughout the novel because the mother, the novel is so centered around parenthood. And Ginger is working to find that balance between caring for Phoebe's needs because Ginger views her as being a very, a very change-averse child, Mm -hmm. but then also not projecting her own fears onto Phoebe. Mm -hmm. You've touched on this a little bit, but I was wondering why it was really important to you to showcase that kind of relationship in this novel and how you think that Phoebe and Ginger's relationship differs from some of the other mother-child relationships we see in the book. Yeah, you know, one thing I haven't said but was really important to me as I was writing this book is I was trying to get as many perspectives in here as possible, as many different kind, different kinds of adoption, because we have this narrative that's like people have fertility issues and then adoption is their last choice. And that is not at all the reason, you know, that people come to adoption. So I wanted a lot of different reasons people come to adoption. I wanted some different age ranges. I wanted some lots of different stories, which we haven't talked about sort of those letters from hopeful adoptive parents that are in here, but they are in there as well. And so, so one of it was just sort of when I was crafting each of the mothers, it was like, okay, what, what can this particular character bring in, but you know, from their background, what can they bring from reasons that they decided to grow their family through adoption? What can they bring from the kind of parent that they are and the kind of relationship they have with them? And I will say, you know, again, not having the kids take up a lot of space was intentional in the story for a couple of reasons. One is I was really nervous about writing kids because I feel like it's so hard to do well. And I have often read books where I'm like, okay, your six-year-old sounds like she's 30, you know? Like, (laughs) this is, and I didn't want people to do that with this book. Again, also the question of, it's like they say, like, never perform with kids or animals because they will just take the spotlight. And it was the same thing. So I had to choose this moment in time for the kids where it wasn't a moment of trauma, because we also know, even in adoptive families that are very healthy and work very well and are highly functional, that the kids can still wrestle with this with this question of their status as an adoptee. So I had to choose this moment where that was not huge and central. You do see it bubble up occasionally from the kids, but it's not it's not a big deal. So so that was so that's one thing I wanted to say about about writing kids. Yeah, Ginger absolutely is protecting her, projecting her issues onto the kids, which is something that is super common that parents do. If you're a parent, you know, I'm sure you catch yourself doing it, or you can look at your parents and watch how they do it, how they did it. It's funny, you know, when I go out, when we have play dates with other families, and I can watch them parenting and just sort of see the way that they parent that's so different from us, and the ways in which that is manifesting who they are. But Phoebe is also of a relation of an age where she can articulate her feelings. And, you know, she's sort of like a fully formed human being to the point where she can't be dismissed, right? It can't be like, 
oh, she's just a kid. She doesn't know herself. She is old enough that she knows herself. And she and Ginger have this relationship where Ginger, I think, trusts her enough to know herself. The story with them, for those of you who haven't read the book, is that Ginger did not want to adopt. She did not want to become a mom. She never saw that happening. And Phoebe kind of chose her. She was volunteering at Phoebe's school. And when the children's grandmother died, Phoebe was like, no, I want to go live with Ginger. So Ginger kind of stumbled into this. And part of this is this unexpected it's like, I haven't had time to think about it. This is something that happened to us when we adopted. We had not been looking to adopt. We sort of stumbled. I say we accidentally adopted my son. So everybody else has nine months to think about becoming a parent. We had three. And it was not a lot of time to think about things. And we ended up making some weird decisions. I was like, I need to buy an attic fan, which is something we have in Colorado that you probably don't know what it is. But it was like $2,500. And I was like, I need to do this. I don't know why, because I need to exert control over something. So anyway, Phoebe is at this point where she's starting to see herself as a wholly articulated human being and that she recognizes that her desires and her needs are different from Ginger's. And she can say that to Ginger and Ginger, who is this very thoughtful, logical, analytical person can say, I see you are a separate human being from me and I'm going to go ahead and trust you. And she's really, I think, the only mother who's capable of, of doing that. And it's one of the nice things actually about adoptive parenthood is I feel like biological parents come in with so much baggage and they're like, you know, I want a mini me and my kid is going to be just like this. And my kid is going to be just like me in this way. And with adoption, it's like, I don't know, you get to be the person you are friend and I'm going to support you and love you and encourage you. And, but other than that, it's all you, you get to decide who you're going to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think, too, that something else that I really enjoyed about Ginger's relationship with Phoebe is that as much as Ginger does have a little bit of a problem, maybe a big problem, with projecting, she also still knows her kid. And when they tell all of the kids that Brianna's pregnant again, Ginger has kind of an oh crap moment in the middle where she's like, I should have told Phoebe about this sooner. Mm -hmm. And she's not surprised when Phoebe then comes back to her and is like, Marmy, what is going on? Mm -hmm. I don't understand what's happening here. And so as much as there is that projection, she still has a deep understanding of who Phoebe is and how best to help her and support her. And to me, it really circles back to the idea that Phoebe and Ginger are well-suited to be together. Like Phoebe chose Ginger and they're very well-suited as a family of origin together. Yeah, 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 they are. And I think, I mean, that is an interesting moment because it's like, that brings together a lot of conflicts. It's my, my loyalty to the family and the way that we've agreed that, you know, we're going to tell the kids things together and this is how we've always done it. And my loyalty to my child and Ginger kind of realizing, okay, this child is actually, this is a different child. She's at a different phase in life. I should have had this conversation with her first. So it's those sort of conflicting loyalties that happen that I think are additionally a little bit stronger because of Phoebe's age, because she's a little bit older. But this is one of the things that's in constant negotiation, right? Relationships are in constant negotiation. And what worked for you before is not always going to work for you now. And you have to be willing to, to let that go. But yeah, I do think I I really like them as a pair. In one early draft, Ginger had this guy that she'd been seeing and he was 
just he was awesome and he was wonderful but i was like no i'm sorry sir you need to exit the story because this is really this is really ginger and phoebe you know they are the unit that we need to be concerned with well i love that you made that choice the fact that she was committed to being single and that was her family and that was whole and complete was a really lovely part of the book Right. And that's another thing too. You can do that, right? Your family gets to look how you want your family to look. And she doesn't, she doesn't want a partner and she doesn't, you know, she didn't want kids, but she found this child who wanted her. And I actually have a lot of respect for Ginger, which is a weird thing to say about an imaginary person, but I have a lot of respect for her for being like, you know what? I never saw myself as a parent, but this child is in need and I'm going to step up and and take care of her. I'm going to I'm going to step up and be the person that she needs me to be. Yeah, absolutely. And then they form this very unexpectedly beautiful relationship that just feels so fulfilling to read about, and it just felt very yeah, I think that this is what family's supposed to be all about, you know? Yeah. Like it, this is hard and you're going through a lot right now, but this is this is what it's about at the end of the day. It the novel ended up answering its own question in that way. Yeah, yeah. To round things out, I wanted to return to the author's note really fast because you've mentioned there and you've mentioned in the interview that you're very clear that this isn't the story about adoption meant to cover every possible topic because that would just be impossible. But I am curious, where do you hope to see literature and media about adoption go in the future? And what stories about this experience do you think are underrepresented that you'd love to see in the media more? Oh my gosh, there are so, so many. So we have an entire generation of adult adoptees who are in this really interesting situation because they were probably raised in closed adoptions, but they now see open adoptions. And so they have these feelings about what might have been. And they hear, there is an incredible amount of anger in the adult adoptive community and that we really need to listen to because you know for someone like me I'm like I want to learn from choices that we made in the past that were not helpful to families so that I can learn from that and and kind of do better with my child we also have there was this huge boom of international adoption sort of the 90s to 2010 and so again we're getting to a place where these kids who are not they're not kids anymore are going to be in a position where they need to tell their stories one of the books that i always try to recommend and i always screw up the title is nicole chung's memoir I think it's called Everything You Ever Know. It's something like that, but it's Nicole Chung. And she was adopted from Korea and raised in a white family. And she, her, I mean, of course she's a beautiful writer, but she just has some really interesting thoughts. So I feel like these stories are underrepresented. And then we're going to need to hear, I would also love to hear more from birth parents, because again, we have this narrative about birth parents. The first question people always ask me, is, oh, was his birth mom really young? I'm like, no, actually she wasn't. She was in her 20s. She just wasn't ready to parent and wasn't in a position to parent. And so we have this, we have this narrative that it only, only birth parents are really young. The birth father, when I went looking for Mother's Day cards, I could find Mother's Day cards for birth mothers, but I couldn't find Father's Day cards for birth fathers. Because again, like there's this narrative that birth fathers are just disconnected. And again, that's not always the case. They're not always mentally ill. They're not always addicted. There's lots and lots of of stories here. So I would just, I feel like what's underrepresented 
is a diversity of stories, right? We're going to need to listen to, to adoptees who are raised in transracial families. We need to listen to these international adoptees. We need to listen to folks who were raised in closed adoptions and who were distressed by that. So, so yeah, we just need to continue to open up this genre in ways that break the myths about adoption. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense to me. There's so much of a single story going on around what this very specific experience looks like. And it's not to say that for the people who have that very specific experience that that representation is bad, but there's just so much more going on. Adoption plays out in my life in a very distant way, but my spouse's parents were both adopted. So even just in terms of a generation down, there's a lot of questions we have because there were both closed adoptions that we now just can't answer. And in the grand scheme of things, that's such small potatoes, but it is one of those things where it's like, man, this really affects things generations down. And that's still a beautiful experience, but it is just kind of the reality of it simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely. And we, I mean, even then we have this this whole issue of 23andMe or Ancestry.com where people are doing DNA tests and finding out, you know, things and connecting with relatives. And that story doesn't always look the same either, right? I know people who reunited with families or learned about, you know, medical issues and it's been wonderful. And then we have a good friend who... um was raised in a close adoption and his biological mother found him through 23andMe and he was like, I, I don't want a relationship with you. I have a family. And, and at some point, that is the choice of the adoptee, right? We say that with my son all the time. You know, we cultivate a relationship with his birth family. At some point, that's going to be his choice. At some point, you know, he's going to decide whether he wants to continue that or deepen it or whatever, whatever he wants to do. So, yeah, it's complicated and it, and it stays complicated uh, years on, just, just like any other family. Yeah, there was so much to talk about with this book that I actually had trouble keeping the amount of questions that I had to a reasonable amount. But there's a lot of themes that we didn't talk about. Is there anything else about the book before we wrap up that you wanted to touch on that I didn't ask about? I think, I mean, I think I've brushed up against it, but just so, so it's primarily a story of these, of these three mothers, these three sets of parents, but within the story, I have these sort of interviews with or letters from hopeful adoptive parents who are interested in adoption. And, you know, again, that was part of trying to represent all of the ways in which people come to adoption as a way to grow or build their family, that it's not always easy. There is somebody in there who was one of those hopeful adoptive parents is someone who was adopted. And so that's formed her desire to adopt. But also within those, I really wanted to challenge the reader to wrestle with this question of what makes a good parent and to be put in a position where they have to decide because it is such a weird thing to think about. We choose who gets to be a parent. We choose who we think is going to be a good parent by what rubric, by what cultural standards are we making these decisions? So, and I tried very hard in all of those to have one really amazing thing about that hopeful adoptive parent and one thing that might be really off-putting. And some of those I think I did too good a job with. My editor, there were a couple where my editor was like, I just don't feel like these are working. And I was like, do you not feel like they're working because you wouldn't, you know, choose that parent to adopt? Or do you not feel like it's working because it's not presented well? So, you know, my hope is that that when people read the story, they will really wrestle with that question of what makes, you know, a, a good parent and, and who gets to decide that on what basis? Because it's a, definitely a tricky thing. 
I really loved those vignettes and I thought you did them so brilliantly too because when they first start coming up as the reader you don't realize exactly what's happening until about halfway through the novel when you realize oh these are prospective adoptive parents for the baby that Brianna's planning to have and then adopt out again and it really and then you find yourself as the reader being like well I'm drawn to these specific parents and then having to take a step back and be like well why do I feel that way and what makes me qualified or any more qualified than the family to make these decisions. And I also loved the way in which the family ultimately made the decision that the criteria that works is the criteria that works well for them and their dynamic, which I thought made a lot of sense, but still has its own problems. And then the way you left it open ended at the end too, you know, you don't know, you know that new parents have been picked, but you don't know who they are was Mm -hmm. also, I think so brilliantly done to really turn the lens back on yourself as a reader to examine your own biases about it. I really loved that part of the book. Oh, good. I'm, I'm so glad. I actually, I have very strong opinions about who I think it, it is. And I was going to have it end a little more closed, but I was like, no, I really want people to wrestle with this and, and sit with this question and think about what would I choose? What would they choose? What are my reasons for doing this? What are the, their reasons for doing this? So, so I'm really glad you enjoyed that. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. My headcanon is that it's the florist and the law professor, but I don't know if that matches with with what your thoughts were. But that was the that I'm was the couple that I felt the most strongly about by the end. I, no, I, I like tell- them. Oh, they definitely no. they have some they have some issues, you know, as it goes with this family. But I like them a lot too. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any upcoming projects that our listeners should be keeping an eye out for? Um, I don't right now, but I am still touring. I'm going to be at the National Book Festival in DC in a few weeks and continuing to make appearances randomly all over the country. So um, people can check out my website, eleanor-brown.com to see where I'm going to be. Fantastic. Well, thank you so very much. Uh, And we will talk to you all very soon. Goodbye, everybody. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.